Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with you today. Um, this is my first time here, I believe, but uh, as your pastor mentioned, I've had the benefit of knowing him for years, and I just want to express to you how much I appreciate him. Not only his heart for you all here in this church, but also for the ways that he serves other pastors here in the city. And it's been a real encouragement to uh, get to know him more as I've moved to the city. It's a real encouragement for me to be here with you this morning. We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 2. Now, I need to say before I read this text and before we preach it, that I don't remember why I picked this. I want to say that because in hearing this text, you might think, "Uh uh-oh, like Pastor Eric told Jeremy to come and preach this crazy text for some nefarious motive. That's not true. I just literally got a text from Eric saying, what do you want to preach on? And I was reading through Jeremiah again and went, Jeremiah too. Now, this is a good moment in time to just uh, know something about being a guest preacher. You're not supposed to pick texts like this. These are texts that we're very thankful are in the Bible, but when you're guest preaching, you should pick nice texts, not stuff like this. The irony is that while the text is heavy, I'm not going to lie to you, I do think that in here are the kinds of things that we don't want to hear, but we all need to hear on a constant basis. So hopefully... I have properly sowed some intrigue into your brain. I'm going to read the entire section in one go, all 37 verses. And it's going to be ugly going, I'm not going to lie to you. But as you hear it, I want you to do something that might be uh, difficult for you. I want you to listen for the places in this text that resonate with you. Not so far as like you thinking about other people, but the ways in which you tend to think, feel, or say the same kinds of things. Because like it or not, I think that this text, like all texts in the Bible, serves as a mirror. Serves as a mirror to show us who we are and how we ought to be. So, we're reading from the English Standard Version, Jeremiah chapter 2, reading from verse 1 to 37. The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Go and proclaim to the, in the hearing of Jerusalem, thus says the Lord. I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holy to the Lord, the first fruits of his harvest. All who ate of it incurred guilt. Disaster came upon them, declares the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord, O house of Jacob. And all the clans of the house of Israel, thus says the Lord, What wrong did your fathers find in me? They went far from me and went after worthlessness and became worthless. They did not say, Where is the Lord who brought us up from the land of Egypt, who led us in the wilderness, in a land of deserts and pits, in a land of drought and deep darkness, in a land that none passes through where no man dwells? 
and I brought you into a plentiful land to enjoy its fruits and its good things. But when you came in, you defiled my land and made my heritage an abomination. The priest did not say, Where is the Lord? Those who handle the law did not know me. The shepherds transgressed against me. The prophets prophesied by Baal and went after things that do not profit. Therefore, I still contend with you, declares the Lord, and with your children's children I will contend, for cross the coasts to the coast of Cyprus and see, or send to Kedar and examine with care. See if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, even though they are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Is Israel a slave? Is he a homeborn servant? Why then has he become a prey? The lions have roared against him. They have roared loudly. They have made his land a waste. His cities are in ruins without inhabitant. Moreover, the men of Memphis and Taphnes have shaved the crown of your head. Have you not brought this upon yourselves by forsaking the Lord your God when he led you in the way? And now, what do you gain by going to Egypt to drink the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the waters of the Euphrates? Your evil will chastise you, and your apostasy will reprove you. Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. The fear of me is not in you, declares the Lord God of hosts. For long ago I broke your yoke and burst your bonds, but you said, I will not serve. Yes, on every high hill and under every green tree you bow down like a whore. Yet I planted you like a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? Though you wash yourself with lye and use much soap, the stain of your guilt is still before me, declares the Lord God. How can you say, I'm not unclean, I have not gone after Baals? Look at your way in the valley. Know what you have done, a restless young camel running here and there, a wild donkey used to the wilderness in her heat sniffing the wind. Who can restrain her lust? None who seek her need weary themselves. In her month they will find her. Keep your feet from going unshod and your throat from thirst. But you said, it is hopeless, for I have loved foreigners. And after them I will go. As a thief is shamed when caught, so the house of Israel shall be shamed. They, their kings, their officials, their priests, and their prophets, who say to a tree, you are my father. And to a stone you gave me birth. But they have turned their back to me and not their face. But in the time of their trouble they say, Arise and save us. But where are your gods that you made for yourself? Let them arise, if they can save you in your time of trouble. For as many as your cities are your gods, O Judah. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children, that they took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravaging lion. And you, O generation, behold the word of the Lord. Have I been a wilderness to Israel or a land of thick darkness? Why then do my people say we are free? We will come no more to you. Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? 
Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. How well you direct your course to seek love, so that even to wicked women you have taught your ways. Also on your skirts is found the lifeblood of the guiltless poor. You did not find them breaking in, yet in spite of all these things you say, I am innocent. Surely his anger has turned from me. Behold, I will bring you to judgment for saying, I have not sinned. How much you go about changing your way. You shall be put to shame by Egypt, as you were put to shame by Assyria. From it, too, you will come away with your hands in your head, for the Lord has rejected those in whom you trust, and you will not prosper by them. Today I want to talk to you about the peril of looking somewhere else for something you already have. I wonder if you found what you're looking for. Our society is based upon the idea that you have not found what you're looking for, but you can find what you're looking for if you just try a little bit harder. We have plenty of things, but what we have isn't as good as the next thing. This applies to phones, to politicians, and even to preachers. What we have is fine, but, it's, it's, but is, is it really the best? Don't we just need the next best thing? Our society pushes us to ask at every moment, have you found what you are looking for? And answer every time, no, of course not, but, but I could. I just need to try a little bit harder. Make no mistake, this lie that you and I have a tendency to buy into each and every day, this lie that we call consumerism, is a folk religion. It promises us happiness and peace and rest if we just keep looking for something else. We're tempted to worship at its altar every day, making our sacrifices and thinking, well, it hasn't worked yet, but maybe that's just because I don't have enough faith. Maybe it's because I haven't tried hard enough. We always look for something else. I wonder, have you ever felt the temptation to ditch God and move on to something else? Some of us would think, oh, that's, that's never me. But we should be careful in how we answer that question. If for no other reason, because the Bible is full of people who are doing just that. People just like you and me. People who live under the delusion that what we most want is found somewhere other than in God. That's what's going on in our text this morning. This text was written for the people of God. And so you and I reject this word to our own peril. I want to argue something very simple from this text. Something I hope you already know, but something you definitely need to be reminded of. And here it is. To abandon God is to embrace death. In other words, this text presents the peril to us of looking somewhere else for something we already have. Let's begin by just observing 
the crazy act of abandoning God. We see that in verses 1 through 13. To really get what's going on here, we kind of have to situate Jeremiah in history. Jeremiah is writing to Judah, which is the southern smaller tribe in Israel. Israel is the northern tribe. Judah is the southern tribe. And Jeremiah is writing to that southern tribe. Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken into captivity many years before Jeremiah's writing. Why? Well, they had abandoned God. And they had abandoned God because they were seeking political security and novelty in other religions. Judah, the smaller southern kingdom, was all that was left in the promised land. Jeremiah is summoned by God to speak to this southern kingdom. And it's a, it's a complicated calling, mainly because he has to go to this southern kingdom and say, listen, I don't know if you paid attention to what happened up north, but um, they were fools. You're twice as foolish because you're doing the exact same thing. I just summed up essentially the entire book of Jeremiah. By the way, God tells Jeremiah when he calls him, um, Jeremiah, nobody's going to listen to you. That's in chapter 1. You should go read it this afternoon. Real encouraging. I like preaching that when pastors get ordained. <laughs> Can you imagine? Oh, welcome to the ministry. Nobody's going to listen to you. Thanks, God. Wonderful. Through Jeremiah, God recounts here in the beginning, in the first three verses, the early days of Israel's life with God. Those days when they wandered in the wilderness after they had been saved from slavery in Egypt and they were in the wilderness. It was a sweet time. It was like the early months of a newlywed, of newlyweds, right? Just kind of like, oh man, like everything is great. I heard you two got married not too long ago. Congratulations. It's like, oh, this is wonderful. That's the way God is kind of recounting these early days of Israel in the wilderness. But as beautiful as these opening verses are, they're set up as a contrast to everything that happens shortly thereafter. In short, just like too many marriages today, Judah abandoned God. The principal problem is right there in verses 6 and verse 8. Everybody stopped asking a very important question. And the question is this, where is the Lord? In other words, they had forgotten who God was. I wonder if that sounds familiar. Friends, do you know why we keep coming to church? And why it's so important to have a pastor who preaches from God's word? It's not just because it's like the right thing to do or trendy or something. It's because it's literally the only way to not forget who God is. Why is it it that you like Eric? I I don't know. I'm assuming, yeah, I'm assuming that they, they do like you. It's a big assumption. Assuming that you do like Eric, why should you appreciate Eric? Here's one reason, and if he stops doing this, you should fire him immediately. Wait for it. If he stops preaching the Bible. Oh, he could, he could be all about everything else. He could put on the best programs and organize the best whatever. 
But the minute that he stops preaching the Bible, you should fire him. Here's why. Because the minute that you stop being reminded of who God is, is the minute that you start abandoning God. You just wander away. These were the people living in the promised land. And yet they just stopped asking the question. We love experiencing the gifts and forget about the giver. It's so insane, this situation that's going on, that the people, or that God himself is bewildered at what the people are doing. In verses 9 through 12, God calls heaven and earth to kind of look on the situation. He's like, um, hey, all of creation, look at, look at these people down here. So has anybody else left their gods? He goes, the crazy thing is, they haven't abandoned their gods, and they're not even gods. They're not even real. And yet somehow, my people haven't figured out how to abandon me. We live in a very different time and place. But friends, are people all that different today? I don't think so. You and I are so tempted to become more devoted to our careers or the Chicago Cubs than God. Now, your job is great, and the Cubs are not great, but next year they're going to be awesome. (laughs) These gods that are not gods are things that keep our allegiance, even though at the moment that something like a job becomes your God, all it ever does is let you down. You see, the more things change, the more they stay the same. This is thousands of years ago, and the people are doing exactly the same thing. They're abandoning God to hold really close all the other things that never do them any good. Brent, is that you this morning? You might think, well, why is this so bad? It's right there in verse 5. To go after worthless things is to become worthless. Even worse than that is what we have in verse 13. God says this, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. In other words... To abandon God is to embrace death. This is kind of hard for us to understand what God's saying here, mainly because you and I live in a time and place where we have indoor plumbing. And believe me, indoor plumbing is awesome. Right? And if you're like, "Eh, that's not that great, just go to a place where they have no indoor plumbing, and you will be more thankful for indoor plumbing than you could possibly imagine. These people lived in a desert. One of the greatest gifts in life were to be in the desert, but next to a spring of water. That would have been the most amazing thing. Water coming up from the ground because not a whole lot of water came down from the sky. Abandoning God was like digging a broken cistern, kind of a basin to hold water, in a place that it doesn't rain very often. And in a place where you can't just go down to the supermarket and buy a few gallons of water just in case. 
This is like, what they're doing here is as foolish as this. It would be as foolish as if I were to call the water company and say, turn off my water, please, and rip out all the plumbing of my house and put it on the front yard so that all my neighbors could see and stand in the front yard just with my mouth open to the sky. And when everybody walked by going, what are you doing? You go, I'm not doing plumbing anymore. I'm just going to wait for the moisture to fall into my mouth. People would have reason to be concerned, mainly because it's an act of insanity. But if I really dedicated myself to such a path and to only getting moisture in my body that way, I would die very quickly. That's exactly what they're doing here. I wonder, friend, are you feeling thirsty this morning? Could it be that that's because you've abandoned the only source of water? What could possibly cause God's people to abandon Him? It seems so crazy. What could cause people to look somewhere else for something they already had? Well, the rest of this text answers that question in two rather uncomfortable ways. What would cause God's people to abandon him? These are going to be very familiar to us. One, political security. And two, religious novelty. We'll take them in order. Let's think about political security. You and I have a tendency to abandon God for political security. That's verses 14 to 18. I wonder if that sounds familiar, abandoning God for political security. It's happened to God's people time and time again. And according to this text, abandoning God for political security is slavery leading to death. Just look at these verses. Notice verse 14. Is Israel a slave? Is he a home-born servant? Why then has he become a prey? Being forced into slavery is one thing. Enslaving yourself on purpose is something completely different. That's exactly what Israel had done. And if you ask the question, well, who did they enslave themselves to? I wonder if you caught it the first time around. I know you won't believe it. It's right there in verse 18. And now what do you gain by going to Egypt, drinking the waters of the Nile? Or what do you gain by going to Assyria to drink the water of the Euphrates? You might think, hold on a second, hold on. I'm not an expert in the Old Testament, but Egypt... Aren't those the people who had originally enslaved the Israelites? Yes, that's them. And now they're going, in order to get security, we'll go back to Egypt. That sounds crazy. Then you go, what about Assyria? You go, hold on. Who was it that enslaved the northern kingdom of Israel? I'll give you one guess. Assyria. This is the crazy thing, friends, about what they're doing. Judah had willingly enslaved themselves to both of the worst 
political powers you could possibly imagine. And yet Judah had done it willingly and been wrecked as a result. Notice what it says in 17. Have you not brought this upon yourself by forsaking the Lord your God when He led you in the way? Friends, it's easy to kind of just sit back and shake our heads at people like this. Go, oh, what a bunch of idiots. But what you and I should be doing is taking a long, hard look in the mirror. The seduction of political security is clearly nothing new. Politics today are no better or worse than they used to be. Politicians have always been kind of good and mostly terrible. The same way you would be if you were a politician. Yet to find our security in them is to enslave ourselves to them and in the process abandon God and thus embrace death. What makes political security so seductive to us? There's many potential answers to that. I'll just give one in keeping with the tenor of our texts. Politics looks strong and God often looks weak, doesn't he? Let's be honest, we're amongst friends. Politics looks strong, and God looks weak. I mean, we all know that He exists in everything, and that He's up there in the sky somewhere, but it's like, He's not really doing anything, right? Judah was small, and the other nations around them looked so powerful. Sure, God had set them free, But their position in the moment looked very insecure. I mean, the northern kingdom had been taken away by Assyria. So what better people to cozy up to than the ones who had enslaved other people, just your people to the north? Why don't we just make friends with them and maybe they won't take us away? I wish I could say this was the last time it happened. Friends, this is the story and song of the people of God through time. I mean, just think about the first century. When many of the people of God found political security and enslaved themselves to the political security of the Roman Empire. God looked so weak. Sure, He had brought them back to the land after the captivity to the Assyrians, for example. But for about 400 years, He hadn't really done much. Life in Israel was pretty lame. The Romans were so dominantly powerful. And God? Well, He just looked weak. Sure, it looked good there for a minute when this one guy named Jesus showed up. That looked pretty good. I mean, especially because He came around saying that He was going to bring the kingdom of God. And lots of people got really excited. But then, you know, the Romans killed him. The weakness of God on display once again. Friends, can you imagine how tempting it would be to trust in the political power of Rome the day after they laid the body of Jesus in the ground? 
It's true. God looked weak. Just like he did the days of Jeremiah. But that all turned upside down the minute that Jesus stood right side up. See, in the resurrection of Jesus, the words of Paul become all the more true when he says that the resurrection proves that the weakness of God is stronger than men. It is that Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, that as Paul explains in Philippians 2, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, have you experienced the liberating power of Jesus Christ? The funny thing about the way that our God works is He usually works in the weakness. I mean, if you're a Christian here this morning, you believe that God won through the death of His own Son and His resurrection. It's a religion of weakness. But in this time and place, we live in a crazy moment where we believe that that resurrected Jesus has ascended to the right hand of God and rules and reigns over all things, and yet politicians still wreck the world. And the church still looks weak. And we still get sick and die. So you and I keep turning to politics. Judah had very little reason to believe that political security was going to work. You and I have far less reason, friends. Can a Christian be involved in politics? Sure. But we do so with a full acknowledgement of what it is. A temporary institution in a fallen world that is kind of good and mostly terrible. Politics, friends, isn't worthy of our worship. And to seek security in it is to embrace death. You and I don't need to go looking somewhere else for something we already have. Now maybe you're sitting here thinking, I'm, I'm sure glad that Jeremy is preaching this and that brother or sister so-and-so is here this morning listening to this because they need to hear that message. Well, maybe you're right. But if that wasn't your temptation, I guarantee you the second one is. Because while some of us are tempted to abandon God because of political security, I think many more of us are tempted to abandon God for religious novelty. That's really what we get in verses 19 to 37. This section, friends, is painful. And it's painful because it's True, the poetry here is both haunting and vivid. We might ask the question, what is going after other gods like, according to this section? I know I read it, let me just summarize it. Verse 20, it is like being a religious whore. Verse 21, 
It is like a degenerate wild vine. Verses 23 and 24. It's like a relentless young camel and wild donkey looking for sex in the wilderness. Verse 27. It's being a fool that worships trees and rocks. Verse 32. A bride who forgets what she's dressed like. Verse 33. So corrupt that prostitutes have something to learn from you. Welcome to the world of religious novelty, friends. You're like, I don't know if you're supposed to say those words in church. I know. It's just right there in the Bible. You're like, I don't really like that. Imagine what God thinks about your abandoning of him. Judah was eaten up by it, by this religious novelty, and Israel was eaten up with it before them. And so are we. Why was religious novelty so attractive to them? I mean, Israel had its own religious elements to it. They had worship and everything. But what made this other, all these other foreign gods so appealing? Well, friends, I think that one big reason is because the surrounding religions of Judah's day were far more extreme There were temple prostitutes and a multitude of competing gods to choose from and ritual child sacrifice, a religion of wild experiences that was all about themselves at the end of the day. The pagan religions of Judah's day demanded much more from worshipers than Judah's God ever did, and Judah was happy to give it. So the question is, why is religious novelty so attractive to us? Well, it's because we like going after sexual gratification in any way that we so desire. Because there's many competing brands promising happiness. And because we pursue child sacrifice in the name of our right to pursue freedom and choosing to live however we want to live. In other words, religion of wild experiences that's all focused on ourselves. See, friends, our religious novelty might look a little different than in Judah's day, but it's just the same old gods with new clothing. Just like the religious novelty of Judah's day, That of our own day also requires much more from worshipers than our God ever does from us. We're happy to give it. It's true. I won't lie to you. Being a Christian is not easy. Jesus himself says that if we desire eternal life, peace, and rest, the very things that religious novelty promises but can never give, then we must take up a cross and follow Jesus along the path of weakness and death. But unlike the religions of Judah's day, our God goes first. He sets us free and then tells us to follow Him. He sends His Son to die and rise again and then tells us, to walk behind him. You see, friends, we don't have to go looking 
anywhere else because you and I have already found everything that we've ever wanted in Him. Stick with the Lord, friends. Because while to abandon Him is to embrace death, to embrace Him is to find the life that we have always wanted. Let's pray. Lord, we come to You as a people who are far too attracted by anything else in the world besides You. We like to think of ourselves as better than others. The reality is that We're just as weak and as fragile as the people of Judah. Help us to not look elsewhere for that which we most long for. Help us to avoid the temptations of political security and religious novelty. These things that so easily tempt us to abandon You. And may we strive with everything that's within us to remember who You are and to be grateful for all that we have been given. Most fully through Your Son, Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen.